When I knew that I was coming to Bel Air, one of the people I definitely wanted to have come and participate in the ministry here is the Reverend Dr. Chap Clark. Chap is married to Dee. Where is Dee? Stand up and let us welcome Dee Clark to this church. She's going to heaven for living with him. She is a therapist. One of the things she does is deal in therapy involving horses. Fascinating ministry that she has. She is head of a program called Healing Reigns. And uh, we're just delighted to have you here, Dee, and certainly to have Chap as well. Chap did his Ph.D. at the University of Denver. He has been on the faculty of Fuller for a long, long time. He's vice provost of Fuller today, and he has been, without doubt, one of the greatest voices in America on youth and culture. He really understands that discipline. He has helped many, many churches with their youth ministries throughout the years. In addition to that, he's written some 21 books. 21 books? That's, he must publish everything he says. I don't It's amazing. And in addition to that, he is a sailor, and these folks have three children. Uh, Chap is just a very gifted speaker. He is a dear friend. He's a Presbyterian minister, and you are going to be blessed by his ministry. Chap, come over here and let me pray for you. Oh God, pour out your spirit on Chap today. Thank you for the gift of stories. And as he elevates that for all of us, lift us up, O oh Lord, and put us in touch with that which is holy. Let your truth speak through him this morning, we pray. Give him unique freedom. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks, David. You bet. <clears throat> um, I, my role, one of my roles up until a few months ago was to be uh, responsible for the overall operations of Fuller's multiple campuses. There's seven campuses besides Pasadena and now in Atlanta as well. And so that's been a piece of my job for four or five years. And so uh, part of my job has been actually to be Dave's boss. Can you imagine? Okay, so pray for Linda. Uh, <clears throat> wonderful guy. You guys are lucky and blessed. And uh, it's a great gift of the Lord. Dave's here and so fun to, to get to be here. Yay! You ought to clap for him. And she's out of town, so we don't get to see her. And then Ken, Ken Wales today I met. I don't know how many of you actually know him. He's been a long, long-term member here. Amazing guy. Grabbed me after the last service and brought me into this, this beautiful little chapel over here in the history. That's, if you don't know a lot about that, A, talk to him. He's a phenomenal guy. But also the history of that. This is a great church, and it's really an honor for me to get to be here. I've known for a little while, a few months, that I was going to be coming at this time. Dee and I were going to be coming sharing with you. And as I would consider and think what might be what you'd have me to share with these friends here at Bel Air, um, something began to stir inside of me that hadn't quite coalesced till we went out to go see a movie this summer, late in August, The Butler. We went and saw that movie, and it was one of those films that I'm sure, I don't know how many of you have seen it, and uh, what you actually think of it, but so many people were touched deeply. But uh, it was one of those that just grabbed me by the throat. Marriage, perseverance, hope, injustice, struggle, pain, friendship, change, so many themes. Not just the, 
the text of the story of this man, but all of those underlying subtexts. It was a powerful and moving story. The power of story to grab our attention. That's what happened to me in that August day. There's something about that notion, the idea of stories that have the ability to grab us in the way that almost nothing else can. Sometimes they're rich and deep, and that's certainly where film fits in. The, the movies have the ability to do that. It's kind of like our, kind of our societal fire pit is what films have become. It's, it's the common conversation they lead us into. And whether it's something like uh, The Butler or a movie that is still compelling and grabs us but doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Ralph Winter, who's actually preached here, a close friend of many of us, but really of our family, uh, Ralph said not that long ago that Titanic was kind of a, a weird movie in its fame because you knew the ending. You know, everybody knew that that boat was going to sink and they still actually went to the movie. In fact, junior high girls would go six, seven, twelve times to go see the movie. They knew what was going to happen because of the story that grabs us. Maybe it's a movie that you can think of recently you've seen that you walk out of there and for days it kind of haunts you. But there's also that grabs us in that same kind of way that's a rich and deep as music. And whether you're, uh, depending on your age and your parents and where you grew up, maybe you're a Macklemore and Ryan Lewis fan, Edgar Winter, The Eagles, James Taylor, Tiny Tim, to go way back, you know, Buddy Holly, or to go really way back, Cher, depending on who really... Uh, <laughs> If you're here, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean it. <clears throat> you know, it, film and music grabs us on so many different levels for a lot of reasons we don't even necessarily know. But then there's those stories that are really kind of superficial. And you kind of wish they didn't grab you, but they still do. In fact, it was reality shows. That phenomenon is such an odd thing of why it compels so many millions of us to watch them. Uh, for example, Amish in the City, I don't know how many of you remember that. Actually, Bel Air Press was on Amish in the City, whether or not you knew that. And yes, I was on Amish in the City. So I'm just, yeah. <laughs> Let's just sit on that for just a second, just enjoy it. And it's a, it's a great, great story. Um, but why do you watch Hell's Kitchen? Why do we watch certain things? Because something grabs us, and sometimes stories that are painful but are nonetheless profoundly compelling. Whether it's the first Gulf War, the first war we watched from our living rooms or newspapers. A couple of weeks ago, there was a suicide of 12-year-old Rebecca Sedwick in Florida. And it hit the news, and it hit the news hard for a couple of days. This 12-year-old girl cyberbullied relentlessly for a couple of days at the beginning of school, and she committed suicide. What a tragedy. And yet we were drawn in. We didn't know her or her family. And now the news, even in the just last few days or weeks, whether it's the, what happened in the mall in Kenya, or even this morning, perhaps you haven't heard about this, of the 75 killed in a church in Pakistan by a suicide bomber. Horrific. There's just stories everywhere. Sometimes they're more subtle, sometimes they're multi-layered, sometimes they're superficial, and yet sometimes they're just kind of this depictions of pain and brokenness. But something gets us on the inside. The power of story we are drawn to. Now, that actually leads us to our text. 
because the scriptures are filled with story. And yet, and I have to say, as I reflect on this and have for the last several weeks, it kind of is amazing to me that so many things grab our attention, and yet how rarely does the scripture actually do that, to even those of us that have been around the church for a long time. Ken Geyer wrote a great book a long time ago called Incredible Moments with the Savior. And in his introduction, here's what he says. In the daily routine of private devotions and in the weekly ritual of worship, the incredible moments in our Savior's life often become shop-worn and lose much of their luster. When that happens, those moments cease to be sacred ground. Consequently, we no longer take off our shoes and fall on our faces before them. Why? Because wonder is prerequisite to worship. And when we lose our sense of wonder, we lose the dynamic that brings us to our knees. Wonder is prerequisite to worship. Maybe it's because all of these stories that I've described so far kind of hit us in an unguarded way. We don't really see it coming, and yet the scriptures, we kind of put them in perhaps their own category. May Beller Presbyterian Church, and may you, my friends, this morning, uh, hear the word in a new way. Come. Take off your shoes. Enter into sacred ground of the amazing life of Jesus Christ. That's our text. I'm going to show you up on the screen, starting at verse 24, but I'm going to read starting at verse 21, an event in the life of Jesus that compels us with wonder. Verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side of the lake, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And this is where we pick it up. Verse 24, you see on the screen or in your pew Bibles. And so Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus. And so she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and yet you can say, Who touched me? But he looked all around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, 
Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You know, we don't even know her name. Isn't this interesting? Jairus, we know his name. He is important. He is powerful. He is well-respected, likely, and maybe even well-liked. We don't even know this town. We're not sure how large it is, but a synagogue president had incredible status at that time in history. And so Jairus had this daughter. Twelve years of joy, twelve years of happiness as a family, uh, had status and power and wealth and the joy of relationships, and they had just been thrown this amazingly agonizing curveball. Their daughter had gotten so sick she was on the brink of death. What timing as our Lord kind of arrives on the scene. Maybe somebody went to get Jairus. He runs from his house with his friends and he throws himself down before Jesus, please, beggingly, repeat, begging repeatedly, come, we need you. And Jesus responds, of course I'll come. So there he goes. So as we pick up the story, he begins to walk with the crowd to Jairus' house. And the interesting thing about this text is the words pressed around him are not pressed him forward. The crowd was not so interested in seeing Jairus' daughter be healed or about compassion for Jairus' family. The crowd was amazed that Jesus had shown up in their town. So they pressed into him as he attempted to move himself forward with Jairus. As they talk... Maybe the disciples were out in front doing what disciples do. Excuse me, Lord coming. Excuse me, make a little, come on, Lord coming. And so they're intent, they're on the way, they know exactly what's happening. And then comes this woman. A nobody. In fact, in fact, worse than that, she was a criminal. Because she was defiled. That's a word commentators regularly use to describe her station in life. We don't know a lot about the hemorrhaging, but 12 years before, she had started bleeding and it never stopped. Evidently, she had some money and resources, perhaps family help, and tried and tried, but nothing would help. Therefore, she had a name, unclean or defiled. She wasn't allowed to be in the crowd. She had to stay in the outskirts of town, wandering, hoping to get some help and Maybe a word of encouragement from someone. Twelve years of suffering and Jairus, twelve years of joy. That's intentional for another conversation later. And here comes this woman believing that her time has come, that Jesus has shown up just in the nick of time. She happened to be in the town, and she hears about him. So she figures what she's going to do, I need a plan. I need a strategy. As Jesus comes by, I'm going to sneak into the crowd, even though it's illegal, and, I, and I'm not supposed to be here. I'm going to sneak in because I, if I just can touch him, I won't bother him. I won't slow him down. I won't even let him know I'm there. I'm going to believe so much in who he is and his power that I'm just going to sneak in and just touch. And then all of my life will come Together, All of my pain, all of my brokenness, all of my sorrow will be solved because my physical body will be healed from this suffering. And she leans up, and, and scriptures, I, I love this. I'm an odd person. I just, when I read the Bible, 
it's so exciting to see kind of new and relatively odd things. My very favorite word in the whole Bible is there, and it's there twice. It's a great word. So anytime you see this from now, now on, I hope it changes you. The word immediately. That is a great word, right? Because as soon as you say it, it's too late. It's done. Okay, she immediately. No, no, too late. Sorry, you missed it. Okay, immediately. No, as soon as, you're, as soon as you get it out of here, it's gone. And it's used twice. First, immediately she touches him. Bam! Immediately, instantly, she is completely healed. And she knew it, and she felt it, and she clearly had to be blown away by the power that she had just touched. But the Lord felt it too. And the same word is used. At the same instant that she touched him, he immediately felt his power go out from him. Even though he was talking, being jostled, and pushed by the crowd, he felt her touch. And he whips around the crowd as they're pushing into him, and he makes a really odd, ludicrous statement. Okay, somebody touch me. Who touched me? I love that you're, some of you are laughing. Maybe you haven't been to church all that often and you're not this used to it that you go, oh yeah, that's the story. But, and you're actually smiling because yes, absolutely, it's wild. And so the disciples kind of get together and I love how the Gospel of Mark does this. Often the Gospel of Mark says the disciples answered him as if these 12 guys went off to the side, fellas, come here, come here, come here. Okay, well, that's weird. Why did he say that? I don't know why he said that. Okay, let's, you go talk to him. I'm not going to talk, you talk. No, we'll go together. The disciples, plural, go to Jesus and say to him, Lord, I love this. And commentators, stuffy, most of them, you know, say they were being sarcastic. I doubt it. They were not being sarcastic. They wanted to know. They just didn't get it. Lord, um, excuse me, perhaps you actually didn't notice as you're walking, but people are pressing into you. That's the word we're going to use when we write the Bible. (laughs) And the cool thing is, is Lord, Lots of people touched you. Why do you ask such a thing? I can just see Peter saying, Lord, uh, I appreciate that. And if you're bugged, I get it. It's kind of tight, you know, here. Why don't I just ask anyone to touch the Lord? Raise your hand. Okay, sorry, I didn't mean I just touched him. And we'll get you, and we'll move on. Because see, Jairus was who was important. Jairus is who mattered. Jairus was powerful. We knew his name. And you stop. When somebody just touched you, but Jesus knew something that the disciples didn't, if we could go there and be a part of this event, we would be wrapped up in the story of Jairus, and we would completely miss the story of the woman, because she didn't matter. But she mattered to him. He whips around, who touched me? And actually, the construction in the Greek is great, because it's feminine. What woman touched me. You're never going to see that probably in a translation, but that's actually a construction. And she knew. I've been found out. I I tried to sneak in. I I tried to do it subtly. I tried not to make a bother. But he knew that she wasn't completely healed. He knew she wasn't yet at peace. He knew that she wasn't free from her suffering because her suffering was actually less about her physical condition and more about something more intrinsic to who she was. 
And so he who touched me and finally, scared and shaking all over, trembling with fear, the scriptures say, she comes and throws herself before Jesus. And the verse we just read, translated by Eugene Peterson, again the message that Kara read earlier, um, trembling with fear, gave him her whole story. Told him the whole truth is how it's often translated, but I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. She told him the whole story. Can you imagine? The crowd was certainly agitated. Jairus had to be just incredibly frustrated. And yet Jesus stopped, turned, focused, welcomed, received this woman. But she had she had somehow tapped into amazing power and it caused her to be so frightened of what she had entered into. And so she throws herself down, shaking, trembling with fear. And I, the scriptures don't say this, but they don't really tell us much of these kind of things. If she's going to tell him her whole story, 12 years, I am convinced he got down on that dusty road. I'm convinced of this. Doesn't say it. But somehow he created the kind of sacred space where she was safe to tell her story, to bring her story. And as they sat on the dusty road together, and perhaps haltingly at first, she begins to tell, and she sees in his face. She looked into the eyes of love, and she felt the freedom to unpack and unleash her story. And that's when the NIV puts it this way. He said to her, he gives her a new name. Daughter. I got one of those sitting right there. Daughter, you came to me unclean and you leave with the name of daughter. Go in peace. Your faith has healed you and be freed from your suffering. Peace and freedom when Jesus invited her not only to be healed with his touch, but made whole by sharing her story. Why does this matter to us? In a world where there's so much pain, so much suffering, so much work to do, so much obligation, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be, go to church, is to do the right things, is to work hard, is to serve the kingdom, is to make sure we stay in the straight and narrow, is to do all the stuff we have to do, what Richard Rohr calls the circumferences of our lives. Whether it's our faith, or our job, or our friendships, or our marriage, or our family, we move hard and fast trying to make sure that we get our agenda lined up so that as we touch the hem of Jesus' garment, we know that his power is with us and somehow he's going to pull it all together. But still we run. And somewhere deep beneath these circumstances and these agendas, what Rohr calls our, our circumferences, they do matter. They're part of us. There's a deeper story we all hold. That's why stories compel us. My friends, 
we are compelled because we were created by God to not only bring our stories as a gift to one another, but to walk and to sing and to celebrate and to dance within one another's stories. Jesus Christ came not just to save us from the things we can identify, but to truly give us his peace and set us free from the suffering of aloneness. That's the gospel. The good news, you, you came here and you've started, you've come to church, yay! You have not only braved, but you have actually overcome Satan's great eternal obstacle, the 405. <laughs> wow. Seriously, you, you come to church, yay! And you sit and you greet your friends, you're trying to meet a few more, you get involved in various ministries. That's a great first step, but what this teaches us, for this woman not only did her story matter, and her story is valuable, every, value, every bit as valuable as Jairus's. And by the way, he healed Jairus's daughter, in case you hadn't read on. That's a sequel. But her story mattered equally as much. And Jesus knew she wouldn't be healed, given peace, without sharing that story and unleashing the burden of aloneness. Secondly, is that when and as she handed her story to Jesus, there was this beautiful gift of being woven in to God's redemptive plan for all of us. Same is true today. You know, and this is the worst part about this kind of role as we are the body of Christ. It's an important role. But when we actually get to this point, it's much better with two or three or five or seven, small group, over coffee, Presbyterian beverage. <laughs> Where we really sit down and say, tell me your story. Or even more important, when we say, I will overcome the risk and the fear and move beneath and beyond the circumferences of my job or my title or my money or my background or my pedigree. Because when you wash all that away, each one of our stories matter. That's the church. That's the gift of God to you here. Your story matters. First to Jesus Christ, but it matters to God's people. And then as we come together and we meet together and we learn what it means to walk together, sharing our stories together, God weaves us into the beauty of his redemptive plan. That's the gospel. See, if you're in your 60s or 70s or older, and there are a few of you, as I observe, you know, looking around, either that or you've lived a really hard life, okay? That's <laughs> you need a 15-year-old friend. Do you know that? If you're 25, 30, you've moved to L.A., starting to enter into a church community, you need a 45-year-old elementary school science teacher who loves Jesus Christ and will hold carefully the sacredness of your story. And in Christ, we have the freedom, scared and trembling, 
to lay our stories at one another's feet and learn what it means to enjoy, to enter in, to celebrate, to cry, to sing, to dance one another's stories. May God grant you the grace to hand your stories a gift to others and celebrate theirs before Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are we're grateful for the amazing gift of a church like this, for the unbelievable giftedness of musicians and singers and leaders, for the beauty of this place. But most of all, Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity where we get to bring our story into a community that's safe as we trust you. I pray for those who struggle with aloneness right now. Our prayer together is that you would help us to move beneath the own, our own circumferences, Lord, and we would give our stories as a gift to one another and learn what it means to dance as your people.